the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm Pamela Morales, the Communications Officer at the Museum of South Texas History. I'm so glad that the final episode of Season 1 will be published. The last episode that was published for the season was December 2018, so it's been a couple of months. The museum has been very busy, and I hope that you can follow us on our social media platforms such as Facebook and make sure that you're also coming to the museum and enjoying it, not just listening to the podcast. So in this final episode... I interview Jimmy Henderson, who is the owner of Warren Produce in Edinburgh. He deals a lot with watermelons. If you listen to the last four episodes, Mr. Neil Cassidy, who worked for Packing Sheds, sort of gave a broad overview and timeline of how the Packing Sheds were seen across the valley, and eventually they declined, and there weren't as many. And even though many of the packing sheds closed their doors, Jimmy has been able to continue and operate in the packing shed industry. So he's going to give us his perspective and some very interesting stories about the packing shed industry. So I hope you stay tuned, listen to the episode, and learn a little bit about Valley history. Here's Jimmy. Jimmy Henderson. Welcome, Jimmy. Very glad to be here. Jimmy, could you um, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, where do you live, what's your profession, um, how old you are, if you don't mind? <laughs> I don't mind at all. I am 50 years old. I am a fourth generation valley rat. By that, uh, and, that and that's what uh, I call those of us that have, have grown up down here. My great-grandfather moved to the valley around the turn of the century, and he was the first watermaster uh, for Hidalgo County. The Henderson family was, uh, was from far, and my grandfather, uh, Bob, was uh, in the produce industry in, in, uh, the supply, on the supply side. So my great-granddad helped get the water to the fields. My granddad and my father... Jim were spent their lives uh, supplying packing sheds with uh, the packaging material and my brother and I I have three brothers or two brothers there's three of uh, three boys and and we're all involved in the produce business I had my first job in the produce industry in the early 80s my first job was working for Bobby Smith um, first har uh, packing cantaloupes which I was not very good at, and... Well, how, how would one not be good at packing? Well, I'll tell you what, the cantaloupe packers made a lot of money, and so everybody wanted to be a cantaloupe packer, because you got, I don't remember exactly how much you got paid per box that you packed, but they're, they're moving very fast. And uh, the cantaloupes would come down a, a line and fall into a table, and you would size them, they, they would be sized, and you would put them in a box. And so, of course, I wanted to do the, I wanted to pack cantaloupes, but uh, I wasn't big enough or strong enough to do it, and I was very slow, and so the shed foreman saw that uh, I was really slowing up production and taking the spot from somebody that was probably a lot better at it than me, so, so I got moved in, in about 15 or 20 minutes to uh, the shook loft, which is where you put the boxes together and sent them down uh, conveyor belt and cantaloupe season was early and once the cantaloupe was over we moved straight into watermelons that was my introduction to the watermelon business cutting and loading watermelons is what I did that first summer I cut watermelons for a while and I was really poor at that also 
I'm sure now that I look back at it, uh, I'm sure that uh, Bobby Smith had a couple loads that got kicked because the watermelons were green and he it, it flows downhill and the field man probably said, well, I know who's cutting the green watermelons. It's a little gringo kid over there. And so I got moved after maybe a week, I got moved from the cutting to the loading, which is tough because then you're picking up the watermelons and then throwing up throwing them up on a truck but that's where that's where I got that's where I got the hook set in my mouth for for uh, watermelons and I've been doing uh, I've been in the watermelon business uh, since 1991 have worked for some great legendary people in the watermelon business I worked for uh, Ronnie Borders who is still in the watermelon business I worked for Johnny Lowe uh, who was uh, was another legend in the watermelon business, and, and Bill Warren. Each of those men taught me different facets of this business, and, and in 1998, uh, myself and my partner, John Lapide, bought Bill Warren's company, and, and uh, we're still doing watermelons. We've expanded. My brother Chris is uh, does Hispanic vegetables, all hot peppers and tomatillos and stuff like that. And I still do, and I, I do watermelons. Once you get uh, the bug, it kind of sticks with you. What exactly is that? Is it that you do? Like, what are your primary job duties? Obviously, you don't pack anything anymore. Um, so what, what is it that you do now? And, and you'd be surprised, but I do, during the summer, uh, when we're harvesting domestic Texas watermelons, I will get out there and, and pitch watermelons for a little while just to... People get a, get a kick out of seeing me do that. Depending on the season, um, from October through early May is an import season for me. We will import watermelons from Mexico. Every season has a different production area, and we will import the watermelons. They'll come to the, to the bridge where, where they cross into the states. They become our watermelons. Um, we unload them at our packing facility, and depending on how we've sold them, whether we've sold them in bins, which are the 24-inch bins that you see in the stores, uh, or cartons, which, which is about a 65-pound container, and you've got four, five, six watermelons, depending on their size, you, you pack them according to how you've sold them. And this has changed a lot. So when, when I first got in the business, everything was sold bulk. You bought, you know, trucks would come and they would buy a straight trailer load of watermelons. And so you would size them going into the trucks. You'd have peewees, you'd have mediums, and you'd have jumbos. As these conveyor belts would come down the line, you would have a guy that if, if you're, uh, you've got a truck waiting for peewees, well, he's going to anything that's not uh, 16 pounds or under, he would turn them on this truck and they would go on that. You know, you, they'd shoot into that trailer and somebody would be at the end catching them and then stacking them and there's an art to stacking watermelons back when I first started they were all seeded watermelons so you'd have peewees and you'd have mediums which were 17 to 22 pounds and then you'd have the big ones the 20 23 pounds and up or 26 pounds and up depending on on how you sold them and and uh, so that's that's how the business used to be and then uh Probably the late 80s and early 90s, you started doing uh, more bins where uh, you, would st you would put them in a bin at your packing shed and then, st and then use forklifts to load the trailers. So also about that time is when the seedless watermelon became popular. By becoming popular, I mean it was worth more money and uh, consumers, consumers really dictated uh, the switch to the seedless watermelon and seedless watermelon are smaller and round and so they're more difficult to stack now you can still stack them bulk but the business changed into where you wanted to package all that material and as a throwback to <laughs> my family's history in packaging uh, they were very happy when when the packaging went when, when with further packaging because they got to sell more product the way you the way you pack uh, seedless watermelons is is 
similar to the bulk where you're going to size them differently, but uh, the retail customers demand a, a tighter range of sizing. So uh, the industry standard is pretty much you've got 60 counts, which are 60 watermelons in one of those bins, and that's uh, like a 10 to 13 pound watermelon. So you've got a little bit tighter range, but they stack in the bin nice and pretty. And then you've got another size, which is called a 45 count, which that is typically the, the retailers, what your grocery stores want to have, and that's a, a 14 to 17 pound watermelon. And then you've got a 36 count watermelon, which is the larger size. It's uh, 18 pounds to maybe 22 or 23 pounds, and those are uh, traditionally they go to processors or your club type stores, uh, Sam's or Costco. So there's a lot more packaging that goes into watermelons than, than there used to be. A lot of times during the winter time, the volume, the volume is a lot less than it is in, in middle of July. And maybe a retailer won't be sending bins out to the stores because they're not moving a bunch, but they'll send a couple pallets of cartons where you've got four or five or six watermelons in a carton and they can take them out as needed, but they're not using floor space for that, that bin of watermelons. Packaging is kind of dictated by movement. And if uh, the prices are high and the, and, and, uh, the movement's gonna be a little bit less, you're gonna pack more of them in cartons because trucks nowadays, they'll come in the valley and they're gonna pick up you know three pallets of watermelons and six pallets of jalapenos and some citrus maybe. Uh, that, that's kind of how, how that business has changed. In the old days, at every major city, you, you, you have what's called a terminal market, a terminal produce market. Those guys used to serve the function of they would bring in a bunch of different produce and they would service their stores locally from their warehouse. Well, over the past probably 20 years, the produce market business has gone down a lot because the retailers are reaching out directly to uh, the shippers and basically cutting that portion of the the industry out of um, out of out of the work mentioned that part of your job duties is you do help out with the packing. Is there anything else? Yes. Uh, my job duties uh, is basically to make sure everything gets sold. What our company does uh, when we're importing watermelons, obviously, we, we've got a relationship with different growers. The farmer, this particular farmer is going to have watermelons for four to six weeks during the year. And during those four to six weeks, he's got to make sure, you know, it could be this is how he's going to make his money for the whole year is this, this little crop of watermelons. And so we've got a responsibility to market those watermelons. Uh, watermelons have never, never experienced as much growth as they have the last 10 years. A watermelon shipper might used to have been just around during the summertime because that's the only time people ate watermelons in the States. As the demand for watermelons crept into other months, the watermelon guys, and I'm talking about a generation before me, they started creeping their supply lines. So maybe they used to grow watermelons, like Bobby Smith, the man I used to, I, my first job. Maybe he had watermelons in May, but he wanted to keep selling his customers, so he would team up with somebody in a different producing area that would have watermelons maybe after him or before him to continue that supply chain. And that is kind of the model that all commodities have grown into. You, you would have a base, a grower base, that would do a good job at what they did. They perfected the harvesting, the packing, and the sales because all of those are intertwined. What we do is uh, we have different growers in Mexico that we will help with advising them on seed, what seed varieties. As a, as a shipper, we are trying to effectively market 
these watermelons and get the most price, the, the best price we can for a grower without leaving anything in the field. Because if you've got 100 acres of watermelons, every seed that you planted has the potential to give you a certain number of watermelons. Well, it'd be great if you sold these watermelons for $10 a piece. But you know what would happen? You would leave 95% of them out in the field, and so you haven't done a good, good job. So what you want to do is maximize the amount of money you get across the whole field by selling everything. Uh, and that's what we do. We do that in Mexico. We do that in Texas. Now, I don't have any, any tractors. I don't farm anything myself. But in a lot of places, we're, I've had relationships with people for 15 or 20 years. So when we, when we move into an area domestically, we're, we're kind of like gypsies. Once we leave the valley, we, we go to Floresville, Texas. We bring the harvest crews. We bring, when I say we, I mean we, our company, my company. We bring the harvest crew. We bring the packing crew. And these are the same guys that have been working for us all winter. They know how to pack watermelons. They know what I expect. They know what is good and what has to be graded out. So we, we move into a, a town, and I, I move. I've got a trailer, and I move into a, a a little camp, we, we call it going on the road. Uh, you stay in that location for six, seven weeks while the crop's in harvest. And then from there, you move up the state again to the next area that's in production. So it's kind of a nomadic life. You know, I guess for maybe people who are not necessarily uh, know all of these, the way it all works. So then your facility in Edinburgh, you, that's sort of like headquarters. And then exactly. the other places in Texas, they're kind of like the little franchise or franchisee type thing technically you would term it a seasonal office the onion business is is similar once once the the mexican import season is over and the valley season's over there's more production that comes you know up in the winter garden or new mexico or colorado it's very similar because onion shippers have done the same thing they had they had a window where they were able to service their customers. I'm going to say Kroger, for instance. It's a nationwide chain. Kroger had one guy that they called for onions because he always had them. Now they weren't always coming from Hidalgo County. Sometimes they were coming from the Winter Garden. Sometimes they were coming from Colorado. You know, but they just had to make one phone call to to get whatever onions. And and very similar with watermelons. A lot a lot of a lot of uh, grocery chains or, or buyers. For the year round, I guess the thing that, that comes to mind is the reason, or what I'm assuming, the reason being for the year round um, and the different places with growing watermelons is because of the climate, I'm, I'm assuming? Right. South Texas and South Florida. Okay, th- those... <clears throat> Those two locales start the domestic production in uh, early May, say. And as the climate gets better, you know, m- other areas to the far- farther north are able to produce watermelons to, they've got to be planted after, after the danger of frost has passed. And, and th- these are the changes that have happened in this industry, okay? It used to be you go out and you plant a seed in the ground. Well, now... Everybody's concerned about their window, their marketing window, their production window. And so right now as we're speaking, there's everybody's watermelons for Hidalgo County are in a greenhouse, and the plants are, are growing in a greenhouse, and they're going to get to be about six inches tall. And here in about a week or two, they'll be planted. So they'll plant these transplants out in their field, and they will have put plastic mulch down the row so that the soil temperatures will, will be a little bit hotter, so that they'll be able to withstand some of the cold that we're gonna have. Everybody's always looking to get their window a little bit earlier because you're chasing the market. It's the same everywhere, okay? You might have a little bit of different growing practices in say South Florida, south of Lake Okeechobee, where their big problem is too much rain and they set up to pump water off of their fields where everybody else is worried about getting enough water on those plants, but uh, whether you're in the States or you're in southern Mexico on the Yucatan Peninsula in the state of Campeche, it's very similar. You're, you're going in with transplants early, and you might p- 
put some direct seed in later because it's a lot cheaper. We do that in, in Texas uh, later in the summer when you're really hitting the windows that, that everybody around the whole country can grow watermelons. They've got watermelons in production in Missouri, in Indiana, Illinois, all up and down from Georgia, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Delaware, even Colorado and Iowa have watermelons in the late summer. Your, your prices are a lot lower. During those times, you're going to have some direct seeded watermelons, but, but, the, but that by that time of the year, everybody can grow watermelons in their backyard. So, you know, you've mentioned a little bit about the practices of watermelon and all of that really good stuff. Um, I think a lot of people wouldn't have known. Could you, you know, sort of describe or mention, give us a timeline sort of, you started working in the produce industry in the 80s um, with Bobby Smith. Could you tell us a little bit about how that was like? I don't want to overstate the case because it sounds good. That, that I was a cutter and a harvester and a, and a loader and all that, but I really did that for two semesters. As soon as I was old enough to get another job, I got another job because it's hard work. Like I said, back in those days, everything on the watermelon side was, was done bulk, meaning you loaded, you loaded the trucks with loose watermelons on the floor. Now, that really started to change after I left college and, and moved back to the valley, moved back to McAllen. And I, I went to work for, my, my first job was with uh, Ronnie Borders, working in the watermelon business. And at that time, we were still shipping things. Or it was all bulk that I, I did with uh, Ronnie. And I worked for him the summer of 1991. And he... His son, Noel, uh, grew watermelons in the valley. And I and Noel is uh, probably the biggest single grower in the country, maybe by now. Um, but at that time, he grew watermelons in the valley. And then I went to East Texas with, with his father, Ronnie, and... Uh, I had moved out of the, the field work and, and more uh, helping um, get, get trucks to the, to the field and uh, make sure they got the right size watermelons loaded on this truck because if you have a truck going to, say, Kansas City and he's supposed to have mediums and you put peewees on him, well, when he got to Kansas City, uh, he would be rejected. And then... Uh, rejections cause most of the loss in the produce industry because uh, you still got to pay the freight. All those watermelons are now worth drastically less than, than they were when they left here uh, because now you're, you're in, a, in a poor position in that uh, you've got to find somebody that has you at a disadvantage. And that, that's still the same uh, across all produce, still the same case you know if if you have a problem you've got a big problem so it's it's important to do your job right at the shipping end of it because once once the truck closes its doors and goes on the way you're going to have big freight bills uh f that that's one of the things that has changed in this industry a lot uh um is the amount of money you spend on freight and you know one of the things that we sort of know is the industry, the fresh produce industry, um, you know, fruits, vegetables, all mm -hmm. of that was such a big part of the Valley economy. Absolutely. Okay, and in that aspect, how do you see the changes or has it been good or bad as far as, you know, like you mentioned, the, the changes that have happened? The changes happened and, and they're really changes that every industry has faced, okay? Uh, We've got a great climate for heat, okay? But it's, and so we could have the first, uh, the first producing uh, fresh fruits and vegetables in the country. And that was what made us such a big deal. But it's also got its deficiencies in, in that it's a very humid climate. There's a lot of disease that will attack your plants and, uh, so our window was, was, we had a great window for many years, but as 
farming improvements grew, uh, California, who's got a lot better climate than we do, they, they're they're cooler, so they couldn't they couldn't infringe on our earliness, but they could be in production a lot longer. Uh, they got much better yields. Well, as as improvements in, in agriculture, you know, we were talking about laying plastic to to uh, warm up the soil temperature and have it. California would increase or would become earlier and earlier every year. And when California started, uh, they could serve, they could survive and turn a profit on a much lower price than, than the guys in the Valley could. The, the guys in the Valley wouldn't have the kind of yields. They, uh, would have more expenses due to, you know, uh, uh, more fumigation that they had to do to keep the diseases at bay. They, they had to realize a lot higher cost or, or a lot higher uh, price to the ground than the guys in California because they could survive it at much cheaper margins. Well, as California kept moving their window forward, the window for Texas kept shrinking, and the same thing would happen in Florida, you know, uh, that more areas in Florida could produce on top of our window. And so that, that all that competition really started uh, our decline in a lot of the row crops. I'm not talking about citrus because citrus uh, takes a, a much more substantial investment. And But uh, your cantaloupes, your honeydews, your, your onions, your watermelons, uh, cabbage, all, all these crops that uh, we had a uh, competitive advantage of for a long time, as farming became more technical and more sophisticated, other regions, other producing regions could could go longer. Do you think also maybe a lot of the packing sheds in the valley didn't adapt as well as far as like maybe their practices no, or I don't I don't know about that. You know, we're we definitely do things a lot cheaper now and we're a lot more efficient. That was driven by necessity. To, to stay alive, you had to find ways to be more efficient. Uh, but uh, that was not the, I mean, the, the, the big numbers come from the sales side. And if the sales aren't at a certain number, the, the, farm, the, the money returned to the ground is not going to be enough. So the, the, when, when the price, when you're not hitting those big prices early in the season, like you used to, and you're th then the margin that the farmer's making is not going to be enough. And so, if the farmer's not making enough, there's nothing for a packing shed to 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 make money on, and so they go bye bye. Uh, now, in the '90s, moving back to watermelons, which I'm more comfortable talking about more because I know more about yes. them. Uh, in the '90s, there was a, a duty on Mexican watermelons. That came that was that started on May first. That was a pr protection for our domestic growers. You know, uh, the Mexican watermelon grower could not efficiently market his fruit in the United States because, you know, on May first they had to they would have to pay a duty, and that duty was meant to save the domestic production for domestic growers. Well, NAFTA did away with that duty. And so now the, the growers in the valley had to compete with growers in Tampico, Jalisco, all these areas that could produce good watermelons for May, uh, Tampico, Veracruz, um, could really produce good watermelons for May. And without the duty, that uh, those supplies came to the states. And that... Uh, really affected the amount of watermelons that were planted uh, or that were that were feasible because uh, the same rules apply there's a certain number that you need to get if you don't get that that number if you're not selling watermelons for this price uh, then there's not going to be any money returned to the farm and they can't they can't make it it's very expensive uh, we, we had mentioned watermelons used it's a 90-day crop and it used to be a, a relatively cheap crop to grow, but not anymore. 
anymore. You, the seeds are highly selected. They're, they're, um, they're a lot better plants. They produce a lot better plants, but that, that's a, a lot more money that you're spending in seed. You're doing a lot more land preparation. You're, you're using plastic. You're growing the, the, the seeds out uh, and seedlings in the, in, the, in the greenhouse. All these things increase the cost. And um, as your cost of production increases, so does the number that you need to get to make that make money. Watermelons are still a crop that is harvested 100% manually, meaning you have to have people out there. You've got to have cutters that know what they're doing, not like a young Jimmy Henderson. You've got to have that cutter knowing what he's looking for to cut the watermelon when it's ready. You've got to have loaders that go and they pick that watermelon up off the ground and throw it up into a container, whether that container is a uh, bobtail pickup truck or it's a uh, plastic bin, which is what, how we do it, or it's a school bus that's had the, the top cut off, they're throwing that watermelon up, and that watermelon is, is then uh, transported to a central packing area where, where they're sorted. And again, they're sorted by hand. They're sorted by people, real people, real jobs. And um, as, as we know, uh, the labor force that does that is predominantly 98% Hispanic. And for generations, uh, that was fine and dandy. And now it's a problem because it's m you, cannot, you can't hire illegal aliens to work for you anymore. And so the pool of of labor that does this job and like I said it's a very hard job it's uh, uh, it's a lot harder than than what uh, most of the population would do for a living so the pool is shrinking on, on n the number of people that will do that and, and that's that's what uh, I consider one of our uh, best assets is that we have good people that know what they're doing and uh, so a farmer can do a great job growing a crop and all this, but if there's no one there to harvest it, all that money's thrown away. So the fact that we have gente, the fact that we have people that, that follow us around because we are fair and we treat everybody right, uh, that's a big plus on our side because you can't do anything unless that carnival comes to town. And... Uh, so that's one of the big things that the change, the changing of the guard. Okay, uh, our window getting smaller here in the valley. Our window getting smaller for for uh, uh, profitable production of of uh, vegetables. Also, you've got to look at our population growth. Okay, you. I, okay, so. I graduated high school in 1987, and 2nd Street was a dirt road north of Dove. Okay, Th this whole place is, is uh, ex uh, the growth in the valley is tremendous. And all this growth takes up land. All these residences and, and the, the, the new um, neighborhood they're building over here, all that's productive farmland that has been taken out of, because it's more valuable to sell it for commercial purposes than to keep growing cotton or growing vegetables on that, that you know your window now is shrunk to the point where you 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 don't want to risk that money to grow the crop if you're not going to make it back and you can sell it for more you know th this is a, a twofold thing we we had a collapsing window of uh to produce our goods and you've also got an expanding uh, population base that's, that's competing for that land that was good farmland, but now it's good to plant homes or plant businesses on. So that's another thing. The urban the urban growth in the valley has has dictated, you know, less farming opportunities. that you left Valley to go to school. I went to, to school, yeah. yes. Where, where did you go? I went to Texas A&M. 
Okay, so then when you came back, were there any changes? So in the 80s, from this perspective, from Mr. Cassidy's perspective, is in the 80s, it's, you know, the collapse happened, a lot of packing sheds started closing, uh, a lot of people were out of jobs, and then um, he left, um, he went to go work in California, came back in the early 2000s, but he said in the 90s that there was a lot of, um, because the packing sheds closed, um, the economy wasn't so great, and then NAFTA came in, and then the population um, started booming. And so then now there was all these shopping plazas and, you know, businesses and things like that. Um, did you see it of any, any of that change? Do you feel like... Looking back, you can see the change. At the time it was happening, it's just like everything else. When, when, when you're in the middle of it, maybe you don't see that your hair is getting gray or you don't see that you're, you can't run as fast as you used to. But looking back at it, you can say, yeah, I, 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 I can see that now. You know, in the 80s, in, in 83 and 89, we had, we had real bad freezes down here that uh, wrecked the citrus, citrus industry. And that, that's always been the, um, I, I would say, the backbone of, of valley agriculture because it was, uh, it, it was so dominant. Um, those two freezes hurt a lot. And they, they allowed Florida and California to um, take part of that market that the Texas citrus would normally uh, fight them away from. Well, when they didn't have anything, it, it enabled Florida and, and California to uh, take over some of that territory. Uh, you know, as I, I was talking about the labor, and the labor here, you know, whether you're harvesting, if you're clipping onions or you're picking citrus or you're, you're harvesting cabbage or watermelons or whatever, a lot of that labor pool as the urban uh, growth happened, well, there were low-paying jobs available. Those low-paying jobs were a lot better than, than working in the field. Now, I will say this, the, uh, working in the field paid great, but it was hard. So there's that trade-off, you know? I was talking about the, you know, I always wanted to pack cantaloupes because those guys could make, you know, $100 a day. In, in 1983, that was big money. Uh, guys that work for me that, that unload trucks, they, they can make three, $400 a day. It's hard work. But, uh, you know, not everybody wants to work that hard. You know, when, when, you, can, when you can get, you know, $10 or $15 an hour, you know, working at, Starbucks, and I, I don't know if that's the going wage, and I don't know if they hire everybody. It sure looks like they hire anybody, but uh, a lot of people would rather do that than work out in the sun. So you look back and you say, okay, as as the urban development was was booming, you know, all that all that shopping, all that retail business took away potential field workers, and it made the price of those field workers that you do get go up. Because unless you're going to pay more to keep somebody here, they're going to leave. And that's, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we deal with all the time now. Uh, um, you, you have to pay people a good wage or they're going to find something that's easier to do. Do you feel or do you believe that your, your labor practices and all of that has kept the packing shed still going? Well, I... I think it's a part of it uh, because we're able to provide work for people, not just for for six weeks while we're harvesting Hidalgo County watermelons. We can provide a job for people all year long. That that helps uh, stabilize your your labor force. Uh, paying above minimum wage helps stabilize your labor force. Offering different perks stabilizes your labor force. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff that, you know, treating people like humans and not, and not uh, just like uh, fresh meat, and, and that costs you money when you have to go through new people every two or three weeks. That, that, that doesn't work. You want, you want to be able to train somebody how you like to do things and then keep them coming back all the time. Uh, now, that's not hard no matter how good, I mean, that's not easy no matter how good you treat your people because a lot of the people that do this kind of work uh, are rough and uh, the rough edges you know, have consequences. Uh, 
but anyway, that uh, it sort of seems like the economy or rather like the fresh produce industry probably won't make a comeback or rather as big as it was once. No, it'll never be like it was before because the global, we, we've moved into a global situation for, for food supplies. And, and again, like NAFTA, where, where you've got plus and minuses, uh, that's good and bad for this country because uh, it's my belief that at any time that, that uh, your food is not under your complete control, you're at the mercy of somebody else, whether it's you know your neighbor or your another country. You know that that's a problem. Uh, so, you know, just like in every other aspect of of agriculture in our country, it's a shrinking uh, population, and I'm fearful of the day that there's no more American farmers. When there's no more American farmer, there's no more uh, companies to do what I do. So your focus always has got to be to making sure that American farmer is doing well. And uh, as it gets more and more competitive and more and more of the farmers have their children go do something else, uh, it's, it's very much very similar to the watermelon labor. There's... This is not a business that, that gets uh, young workers. No, no, none of none of my cutters that are you know in their 50s or 60s or 70s want their kids to do this. Their kids are doing something else. Uh, so it's a it's and and we're not we're not able to get the the people from Mexico that do it in Mexico can't come do it because it's illegal, and it's hard for them to get a uh, a green card to come and do such a low-skilled job uh, because the, the, the population thinks that, oh, that'll take the job away from, uh, from Americans, and so we don't need them to come. Well, that's not true because you, you're not, you're, you don't have very many uh, U.S. citizens that want to do that job, and uh, that, that's a big challenge that we've got. How do you think the future will look like? Well, I mean, you sort of explained that um, but the the track that it's going now, the you know the timeline. Do you think you'll see another collapse in your lifetime? I, I don't think. I don't think we'll see a collapse because I don't think we're big enough to collapse, right? Uh, we are. are Texas, in, in again talking about watermelons. Texas used to be uh, the number one or number two producer of watermelons in the country. Uh, but that has changed, uh, and now we're consistently third, maybe even fourth behind Florida, California, and Georgia will sneak in sometimes and, and outproduce Texas because uh, the producing areas of Texas are, are shrinking uh, for the same reasons they shrank in the Rio Grande Valley. The windows, uh, the, the lack of return, uh, so you, you've got really, you've got the, the valley. You've got an area, I'm going to call it the Winter Garden, but that's kind of from San Antonio south from, uh, from I-35 to uh, I-37, maybe, um, in that area. And then uh, East Texas still produces watermelons, but not really commercially anymore because it's hard to get plots of land big enough to commercially effectively farm there. And anytime you get north of Falfurious, your labor is going to be a big issue. And uh, so a lot of people that do have the land where they could plant watermelons don't want to mess with, with the labor. They, they're just like, hey, I could plant 200 acres of watermelons here, but how am I going to get 60 people? up here to do this job because you, you can't get the guy the kids that used to you know you hire the football team to come out and do it well they don't do that anymore they're not going to do that anymore and uh, you can't you can't hire a legal labor and the legal labor maybe wants too much money and you can't you, it's a it's an impasse so uh, we're, we're not we're not headed for a collapse because we're not big enough to collapse uh, 
that, that it could just fade away. But uh, I don't think so. I, I'm optimistic. I think uh, that uh, we'll be able to go at, this, at, at the pace we're at. We'll be able to go for a long time. What is uh, one misconception that people have about your particular industry? <laughs> that it's easy. It's a, it's a fight every day. It's a fight uh, because you're, you're fighting. Uh, it's a free market, and, and, and I love and hate it because every day is a new day. What, what you sold your stuff for yesterday can change in six hours. Uh, if, uh, you know, if you're, it, I, it's not easy. It's very difficult. And uh, getting my biggest job is to be like the leader of this, of this gypsy carnival, but, but everybody's got to be marching in the same direction. You, every day you've got to have your sales lined up. You've got to have your harvesters lined up. You've got to have the trucks lined up. You've got to have the packers lined up. You've got to have all the inputs lined up. Uh, it, it's exciting and frustrating every day. You mentioned that in 1998 you bought the business. Yes. So how did that happen? Well, Bill Warren, who, who was the man I was working for, he, and he wanted to retire. He did not want to, to quote him, his father had died at 55 and he didn't want to die at a death selling watermelons and so he wanted me to buy his company out and uh, of course I didn't have the money and so one of my customers at that time was a customer and a friend ended up becoming partners and buying buying out Bill Warren and, and we kept the the same name and it's funny, my partner, John, his name's John Lapide. And at the time, he was a, uh, he was a customer. He bought watermelons. He, he had a place on the market in Brooklyn, New York. And at that time, his vision was that he needed to either get bigger or get out. As we were talking about earlier, uh, people were looking to have, make one phone call and have their, their watermelon supply. They didn't want to call this guy in May and this guy in June and this one in August and, and you, you want to have one supplier. So he became partners with me and there's another, I, I like to call him my twin, another guy in, in Florida that he became partners with and, and uh, also partners with a guy in South Carolina. So John was able to secure his supply lines by becoming partners with with uh, different people in different parts of the country. And he, he's maintained and he's 100% correct. He, you make more money becoming partners with people than you do trying to do it all on your own. And so John uh, and his company, Mellon One, is, I don't think it's debatable, the biggest, they han he handles more watermelons than anybody else in the country because of the way he has set up his you know, he, they've, he's got supplies from Mexico through, through our company here. He's got supplies in South Florida, all the way through Florida. They, they do very similar to me in that they start in South Florida and they've got watermelons through Georgia and South Carolina all the way up to Delaware. And uh, John, John's another gypsy. They, they go on the road where, wherever they're packing watermelons, that's where they set up shop. And uh, it... It lends a lot because people like to see the stakeholders every day working. And I, I feel like that's a big part of our success. Once I learned that lesson, it's something that stuck with me. People want to see that the bosses are there working just as hard as everybody else. And I might not be chunking watermelons, but I'm there before you get there and I'm there after you leave. And so that, that is part of what I think uh, is part of our success. Yeah, especially since, as mentioned, a lot of packing sheds didn't survive that right. collapse. So, right. you know, the museum, South Texas History, has a little area in the exhibits about packing sheds and sort mm -hmm. of like the industry. What is one thing or maybe a few things that you would want people to know about the industry in the Valley? Part of this, I've got four kids, and, and I'm blessed that they are exposed to what they've been exposed to, but... What I see is a lot, a lot of people don't know where their food comes from, how does it get 
from that field to my fork. And I would like, I, I would like people to realize just how much work takes place getting that food from the dirt to your refrigerator. There's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot of hard work in between. And uh, I, I don't think people realize, and, and, you don't, and I'm not just talking about kids. I think it's important for kids to realize how much work people have done in the past to get them in a posi the position they're in now. And it seems to me like it, it's always been that way. You know, it was a much harder life to live in, in 1800 in South Texas than it is now. And every generation has done something to improve the lives of their children. It's impossible to think of anybody having it tougher than, than their parents did. You, you could have less money than your parents, but you are living your whole day in air conditioning. It's very, I, w I, would, I would challenge anybody to tell me that they have a tougher life than, than their parents or grandparents, and they do that. We do that constantly. We want our kids to not have to do the things that we did. So I would, I would like people, if they're at the museum and looking at that, at that pack and shed display, to really think about what it took to get that grapefruit off the tree and put on a rail car to, to be delivered by rail or, or watermelons. How, how, you know, next time you're at the grocery store and you pack, you pick up a 16-pound seedless watermelon, think about your granddad. They used to like the 40-pound uh, Charleston Grays, or Jubilees, or, or these great big watermelons. Well, every great big watermelon had to be picked up by a man or a woman, but generally a man was picking that sucker up. I mean, th that's, that's back-breaking work. And every watermelon to this day, is, it starts the same way. Somebody has cut it, cut it off the vine and thrown it on into a container of some sort to get it to your store. There's a lot of work in between and a lot of it is hard labor. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy, for your insight and your perspective about working in the produce industry. Thank you, it's my pleasure. Just a side note, this episode was recorded after Lisa Adam, the curator of collections at the museum, retired. Lisa worked at the museum for almost 16 years and helped tremendously in collaborating on this podcast. I cannot thank you enough, Lisa, for always helping me, and I hope that you have a great retirement here at the museum. We wish you the best of luck, and I hope you're still listening to the podcast. This podcast was produced by me, Pamela Morales, and in collaboration with Lynn Beachy, the development officer at the museum. Song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about the lost empires and send your questions through the Anchor app. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Real Grande.